0: Welcome to the Theology in Practice podcast, a podcast that takes theology and applies it to the everyday life. I'm your host, Anthony Kidd, and I want to thank you for joining me in this week's discussion. Welcome back to the Theology and Practice podcast. We are continuing in our study of John, and we're going to finish chapter 2 today. Uh, Today we're talking about zeal for God's house, and we're in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The big idea here is that Jesus shows us how, as Messiah, he has a violent type of zeal for his father's house. He disrupts and overturns those who have made the temple a house of trade. He asserts his authority over the religious establishment, and John once again uses this story to confront his reader with the question, what will you do with Jesus? Before we begin, let's get a little context into why John chose to focus on this story. Passover was a time when all the males were required to go to Jerusalem. When you arrived at Jerusalem for Passover, you were required to pay a temple tax and as well as have your lamb ready for sacrifice during the festival. During this time, there were several different types of currencies, and if you were traveling, you would not want to bring your sacrificial animal with you. Traveling in the Bible times was not as quick and safe as traveling is these days. Adding an animal that must remain spotless for the Passover sacrifice to your traveling party would have only made the journey that much more perilous. All of these issues would explain the presence of money changers and people selling animals for sacrifice around the temple. If you read John chronologically, it appears that he is putting this event at the start of Jesus' ministry. John places the event after the wedding feast, but before the encounter with Nicodemus the Pharisee. In the Synoptic Gospels, the event occurs during the week of Passover that led to the crucifixion. Thus, they are placing the event at the end of Jesus' ministry. Some have claimed that this discrepancy is just another reason not to trust the accuracy of the gospel accounts. However, it should be remembered that John is not writing to tell a chronological story. He is writing from a more theological perspective. Commentator R.C. Sproul says, John's gospel is more of a theological reflection than a strictly chronological or biological portrait. Remember, John is writing to complement what has already been written in the Synoptic Gospels. He is writing from a post-resurrection and post-Synoptics vantage point. Always keep John 20, 30-31 in the back of your mind while reading John's Gospel. He writes these things so that we will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is writing so that we will all continually ask ourselves, What will you do with Jesus? John starts by telling us that the Passover of the Jews is at hand. John describes the event this way to give a better point of reference for his non-Jewish readers. Jews would have known it simply as Passover, but a Gentile reader would have definitely recognized it by the description, the Passover of the Jews. The week of Passover puts us sometime in the early spring. It is possible that everything Jesus found happening in the temple started outside the temple and began to slowly work its way inside. When Jesus goes into the temple and sees what is happening, he immediately went into action, driving those who were changing money and selling animals out of the temple. It is important to realize that business was being conducted in the court of Gentiles. While some have described this as being away from the Holy of Holies, it was still a place that was consecrated to allow those who were not ethnically Jewish a place where they can worship God. They were conducting business where Gentiles worship, and I can only imagine how distracting this would have been for those who were genuinely trying to worship God. Jesus' reaction was not necessarily about how they were doing business, but rather where they were doing business. One commentary says it like this, It's not how they were doing business. The focus is on where they were doing business. How dare they take the place of worship and turn it into a marketplace? They've set up shop in the outer court of the temple, the court of Gentiles. Their lust for money is interfering with Gentiles coming to worship the one true God. They've trivialized the worship of God. That's from the Christ-centered exposition commentary, page 49. Jesus' response shows his essentially violent opposition to this interference of worship of God. Jesus' example shows us here that a genuine love is compatible with anger. Love for the purity of the house of God drives him to cleanse it from impurity that had infiltrated it. R.C. Sproul describes Jesus' zeal this way. It was a zeal for the activity of the temple that was designated to accommodate the worship of God. Imagine you went to church on a Sunday morning and went into the sanctuary to pray, but you couldn't focus your thoughts because of the loud and persistent bleeding of sheep and goats. That's what was going on in the temple. The sacred grounds that had been set apart for worship had become chaotic. Yes, people's needs were being met. I'm sure the temple authorities were saying, "We're just trying to be relevant. We're being seeker sensitive for those who can't bring their lambs from home and who need their money exchanged." But in their efforts to make these procedures easy and convenient for the people, they had impacted people's ability to worship. That's from the message of John by RC Sproll, page 29. Jesus' display of anger also reminded his disciples of Psalm 69 9, where it says, Zeal for your house will consume me. In that psalm, the things that burden the psalmist are also a burden to God. In that psalm specifically, the psalmist is burdened because the actions of the people of God were not in line with the teachings of Scripture. A burning zeal for the holiness of God was what drove the psalmist who wrote Psalm 69. After, or perhaps during, Jesus' outburst, the Jewish leaders asked him for a sign to justify what he was doing. Essentially, they were asking him, who do you think you are? They want to know what authority or what he's going to do to fix what he just messed up. Jesus rarely complies with requests for him to display his power and authority with signs or miracles. When a miracle happened, it is typically Jesus' terms, not a demand from those who are around him. Instead of honoring the request for a sign, Jesus tells him that if they tear down the temple, he will raise it up in three days. You can tell that the Jewish leaders do not understand Jesus' point when they state that it took 46 years to build it the first time, yet somehow he is going to rebuild it in three days. Jesus, in a very subtle way, is proclaiming his authority over death. When he says that he will destroy it and he will raise it back up. It is important to understand that dead things cannot bring dead things back to life. Jesus, in asserting that he would be the one to raise it back up, is claiming power over death. Another larger theme of John's gospel to remember is the collision of purity with impurity. Throughout John's gospel, we will see this theme repeated. But instead of purity crushing impurity, we will also see that purity will cleanse and wash the impurity and make it pure. Throughout John's Gospel, we will see that the blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, outcasts will be brought in, sinners will be forgiven, and death will be brought to life. This is reminiscent of Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 that speaks of the one who will prepare the way. This passage has already been tied to John the Baptist, but it will also be fulfilled by Christ who will provide the final purification. If John the Baptist prepared the way, then Jesus delivers on what John the Baptist started. In an interesting conclusion to chapter 2, John tells us that there were some who believed in His name. that's verse 23B. In turn, Jesus did not trust in turn, Jesus did not entrust himself to those who were described as believing. The words believe and entrust are similar in the Greek text. In other words, John is saying here that Jesus didn't believe their believing. Why would Jesus not believe their believing? We're told that he knows their hearts. In his omniscience, Jesus knew that their belief only went skin deep. Their worship and beliefs were only based on what Jesus could do for them, whether he passed their tests and whether he met their expectations. Their belief was not in who Jesus truly was, the Messiah. This is how John once again presents us with the question that will be a constant throughout his gospel. What will you do with Jesus? I want to thank you for joining me for Theology in Practice. Our prayer is that God's word would penetrate into your heart and continue you on your journey of sanctification as you seek to be more like Christ.